Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? Welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast for the week of June 22nd. I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. I'm very happy to be joined today by my friend Ross Ramsey, who is executive editor and one of the founders of the Texas Tribune. Not hey, to make him you? sound, you know overly old, which he is not. Ross is a longtime observer of Texas politics, uh, has been on this podcast and, and many other productions of the Texas Politics Project. He's been very generous with us over the years. And he writes a column three times a week for the Texas Tribune, uh, which is kind of, the, and his column is really the the, the core of the, the analysis content, I think, that the that the Tribune puts out, not that there's not a lot of other analytical content in there, but Ross is, is kind of the, the front line of what we, I guess, used to call the op-ed function at the, at the Tribune. So thank you for right. being here, Ross. You bet. Thanks for having me on. Um, you know, I, I want to start since we've talked about your writing, um, as we record this, Texas is is undeniably a hot spot of the COVID-19 pandemic in the U.S. And, and for that matter, Central Texas, where we are right now, is one of the hotter spots within that, that hot spot. And your column is a, is a good starting point for a discussion of what's going on in the politics that fall out of that. This column, which was published in the Tribune on uh, Monday morning, um, talked about the politics of masking and and the policy around that and and how that's shaping the debate. Uh, so I'm wondering what the burr under the saddle for that column was, Ross. What you know, the, you know, you can write about basically anything you want. I'm wondering what moved you to write that and what you had to say. You know, it seemed to be at we seemed to be at an intersection of people demanding action in response to the coronavirus, new action in response to the coronavirus, sort of a rising uh, level of protest about reopening everything too early. And also from, you know, the people who wanted everything to reopen, a reluctance to do any of the things that make reopening possible or to do some of them. And, and you know, the leading example of that is masks. You know, the governor has gone through this list of four things over and over. If you are at risk, you probably should stay in. If you go out, you should socially distance, you should wash your hands, and you should wear a mask. And he can't even get the lieutenant governor to wear a mask. And, and there's been this, this press from, you know, um, civil libertarians, you know, primarily on the, the conservative end of the pool uh, from some legislators, definitely on the conservative end of the pool, saying that, you know, the government shouldn't order me to wear a mask. I should be able to do whatever I want. Um, a, a friend of mine who's even older than I am pointed out that a lot of these arguments are the same arguments that met with the initial efforts to require seatbelts in cars. How dare you tell me what, you know, what I do in the privacy of my own car? But it struck me as 
you know, we were at an intersection where the number of cases was rising, the number of deaths was rising, the hospitalization rate is rising. Uh, what the governor calls the, I can't remember what he calls it, it's the infection rate, um, is rising, that we're not doing these simple things that would allow us to, you know, slow those increases and keep the economy going, which is what everybody seems to be wanting us to do. I'd like to be safe and back at work. Yeah, and it's interesting, I think, that, you know, it's it's not unusual for people want to want things in the political and policy realm that are intention, sometimes even mutually exclusive. And I think, you know, we're in a in a long discussion about trying to find, you know, I was going to call it the sweet spot, but it's not really that. But, you know, the the ideal way of reconciling, you know, these competing goals, which are clearly intention as, you know, we as we watch the the virus spread. I mean, I, I I'm wondering how, you know, we, I want to get to the politics of this a little later, but, you know, it seems pretty clear to me that the the symbolism that the mask that masking quote unquote as we now call it has taken on is powerfully shaped by the the signals that we're seeing from the national policy environment and particularly the president right yeah it's sort of the you know if you put a mask on your face there's something to see here and there's you know there's why do you have a mask on your face well because we're in the middle of a pandemic and this is the way to stop the disease but if you're kind of denying the disease or denying the spread of the disease or even arguing that the disease is getting better, then a mask is an affront to that argument. And, you know, the, the president seems to have taken that to an extreme and people follow their leaders. You know, in the beginning of this pandemic back in March and I believe throughout April and into May, none of the state's leaders were wearing masks. You didn't see Greg Abbott or Dan Patrick or you know, either of the senators from Texas um, wearing masks. Um, now you see them in masks. The The line has turned. The instructions from the medical experts are pretty clear on this. You know, look, this helps. And if you want to get out and about like we all do and like, you know, the people who want to boost the economy do, the people who just want to get out of their houses do, the way to do that is to, you know, wash your hands, wear a mask and keep your distance. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of political signaling going on at all levels that's the shapes people's responses, I think. And so we we got another bundle of signals yesterday. So your column came out yesterday morning and then uh, in the afternoon yesterday, the governor did a a press briefing, which he's been doing semi-regularly during the uh, during the pandemic. Um how, how did you read that press conference in the context of, of what you what we've been talking about? I thought he changed key. I thought he went from major from major key to minor key. You, you know, this became an unacceptable rise in the number of cases. This is from a governor who said everything is under control. Cases are rising. They're rising moderately. Everything's OK here. Everything's OK here. And that was how we ended last week. And we came into this week with the governor saying, this is an unacceptable increase in the number of cases, and I'm not going to do anything about it immediately, but we are watching this very carefully. And if it continues, we might have to close some of the things we've reopened and reconsider some of the th things that we're doing right now. And he, you know, reiterated his, you know, his message on, you know, masking and distancing and washing. 
You know, I mean, I, you know, I, I want to pick up on something you said there. I mean, I think it was the contrast with the last event, which was late last week, as I recall, that the that the governor did was really striking because the message of the the last event was to suggest that you know they had things under control in a sense as you say and they and the what most of that press conference was about was the fact that hospital capacity was there was that there was still plenty of hospital capacity in the state and in fact he had Dr. Zerwas former legislative member now with UT Health System who's been one of the point people on this in the governor's task force, you know, a bunch of that, that press event was, was Dr. Zerwas showing a series of slides showing how much capacity there was in the, in the major hospitals in the, in, in the areas. And I think in a way there was something embedded in that, that really worked against the message that really came out more fully this week, which was, we're telling you not to worry because there's a lot of room in the hospitals. Well, if we shouldn't worry, why are we paying so much attention to hospital capacity beyond the fact that hospital capacity early on was one of the the metrics of containment? So, you know, I, you know the, message, I was, the messaging also has some ambiguity in it, because if you say, you know, don't worry, we have room in the hospital, they're saying, you know, you're going to get sick, but we have a bed for you. Yeah, you know, that's right. That's exactly. To, that's another way to read that message, and you know that's that's not exactly comforting. Yeah, and and that and I think that's kind of what I was getting at is that by the time, you know, Monday rolled around, you know, we had these sharp increases, and I think that embedded, you know, contradiction or tension really came out. So, you know, I want to talk a little bit about where where they go from here because it seems to me that the approach in Texas has been to create a framework for responding to the pandemic and either its spread or its containment that in the, you know, that in the beginning was billed as, you know, this will be a controlled way of opening up. And if the opening, you know, doesn't go well, we will then reverse ourselves along this spectrum of, of various prohibitions and, and, and slow easing of restrictions. But your characterization of of how the governor's press conference went yesterday and what his message was, you know, was was interesting in the sense in that, you know, he he sort of vaguely signaled that if, in a sense, people didn't do better and start, you know, wearing masks and washing their hands, that at some vaguely defined point, I mean, I you know he was talking about it's at one level a benchmark for a month from now that we will have to reverse ourselves. But he's they've shown zero willingness to do that, right? Yeah, don't you make me pull this car over, right? Um, there's a <laughs> there's a you know what they're trying to do here, and I don't think they would articulate it this way, but I will. They're trying to figure out an acceptable level of infection from the coronavirus. And by that, I mean, they can't make that level zero. They know some people are gonna have this disease until we have a cure for it. And there's a level beyond which we can't handle the cases. You know, the hospitals can't handle them. Um, You get too much of the population sick, everything goes haywire. So you try to keep this at an acceptable level and you control that by controlling the activities that help the coronavirus spread. And 
we were going okay, really, until kind of the events leading up to immediately before and then through Memorial Day, when the governor took his foot off the brakes. He, you know, opened some of the restaurants and bars and hair salons and all of the other things that had been closed from the beginning and opened them faster than he had said he would and did it right before a three-day weekend where you sort of released a population of people who'd been, you know, we've all been cooped up. Everybody wants to get outside. The weather's great. We've got a three-day weekend. The governor's opening the stores. This is going to be fantastic. Everybody goes out. And immediately, if you were watching the other meter, you know, in the in the form of the medical community or the public health community, they were saying, oh, this is going to raise cases. And I began to hear it at that point, as I think everybody did who was listening. Um, those guys were saying between Memorial Day and the 4th of July, we're really going to see whether this Memorial Day thing had an effect. And then George Floyd was killed and we started nine or 10 days of pretty constant outside demonstrations. And there was another set of, just from the public health standpoint, there was another set of crowds. And you know, there's we're still right at the point where we're gonna find out exactly what that did. But all of these things accelerated the number of cases. And we've gone clearly above the governor's secret number of acceptable level of infection. And if we keep that up, he says, we're going to have to hit the brakes in some way. Ironically, they're about to uh, announce all the details of opening schools, which is another accelerant. And if you're talking about the communication of this disease from one person to another. Yeah. I, you know, and talk a little bit about that. I mean, the school, you know, the the subject of opening schools, closing and then opening schools has been, you know, very sensitive one all along, obviously because of the importance of education. I think there's a there's a line in your column Monday that talks about the, you know, just the importance of trying to make up for lost time and and just the the, the substance of making sure that, you know, kids in the public school system get taught for, you know, lack of a better term. Well, um, yeah, and it's multifaceted. You know, you've got the education problems. If you stop educating kids, you know, at least at that age, you know, and it's really important to keep the momentum going. You know, we've got these kids learning, you know, they're halfway through the alphabet, this set over here, and this one's, you know, switching to this kind of reader, and that one's switching to this kind of math. And you want to keep that momentum going. And if you stop, you know, teachers have always said summer costs them some time. So they leave kids in May and then September or, you know, when they come back to school, they've got some remediation to do for the lost months of the summer. We doubled the size of the summer in those terms. You know, uh, there have not been very many success stories really about virtual learning replacing actual in-person learning, and they want to get the kids back in school. So education's one thing. You're going to put five and a half million Texans back into circulation, back into social circulation, and you've got to figure out how to get kids back in schools, you know, and maintain hand washing and masks and social distancing and all of that stuff. And they're also going from, you know, maybe all the kids, you know, maybe it turns out that little kids are safe together in school and all of that's great, but they come back home and then they go back to school and then they come back home and they go back to school. And that communication between sort of the inside world that they're in and the outside world is another opportunity for coronavirus. So in effect, you're doing, by opening schools, you're doing the same kind of thing you did by opening shopping malls and bars and all the other. 
Well, and then the other piece of that is economic in that, you know, kids that are not going to school, you know, wind up being de facto having to be homeschooled by their parents. The parents have to pay attention to that. The parents then, whether they're working at home or not, um, have to figure out how to deal with the fact that their kids are not in school during the day. This has been, you know, I think a big issue all over the place. I know it's an issue here at UT with, you know, younger faculty members that have young kids, you know, as UT talks about what they're going to do in the, in the fall and tries to execute some kind of series of contingency plans and, and preparation for that. The question of what kids, you know, what uh, uh, faculty members and staff members with young school age kids are going to do is a huge one in trying to figure out what works uh, on that. So, I, you know, I want to talk. Public education it is, is that it's you know, daycare for five and a half million kids. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and that sets aside even the, the question of, of daycare itself for, for preschool age kids, which is also right. looming very large out there as both a. Uh, uh, a public health and an economic factor. You know, we've talked about, you know, the, you know, what the governor is going to do, what the government, what state government is going to, not going to do, and just, you know, what the plans are and, and who's going to execute has in itself been a significant policy problem. So, you know, we're getting news now that, you know, in the last I think week or so. Um, it's hard for me to know exactly when this started. And then the governor had said this. There's been a use of some of the regulatory agencies to try to tamp down some of the, you know, sh what should we say, social excesses. So, for example, TABC, the uh, the sort of the, the alcohol enforcement arm of the state government, licensing and enforcement arm of the state government, has right. been doing bar checks not to check uh, the things they usually check like underage drinking and you know the you know pouring licensed liquor but to see if bars are bars and and bar restaurants are complying with the guidelines that have been declared uh you know how much you know how many tools could, does the state have to do that do you think I think they have a lot of tools. The question is whether they want to use them. I mean, you very quickly get into the politics of it. You know, as a practical matter, you know, they can close bars all day. They can close, you know, all businesses. We did that. We saw that in March. You know, there's a question about how long they can do it. But in terms of just their the tools that are available to them, that's one of the tools that are that's available. But then you very quickly get to at what point do you engender a bunch of civil disobedience, you know, whether it's, you know, a hairstylist named Shelley Luther opening her shop in defiance of the governor's order to stop haircuts for a while. Um, at what point does the, does the thing come apart? And, and, you know, Greg Abbott's in the position of balancing, you know, how much um, discipline you can mete out, you know, against uh, what people will take. It seems to vary really with, you know, people's um, perception about coronavirus and perception about the economy and perception about uh, civil liberties and you know where their attention is at any given moment kind of determines what it is they're going to do. A great example is the the people who went out in in really large numbers to protest police brutality and racial injustice 
in spite of the fact that there was a pandemic. You know, at, at that point, they, in their order of importance of things, clearly had the importance of demonstrating ranked above the danger of the pandemic in their minds when they, they made that decision when they went out. And they did it one by one, but a, a large number of people did that. A large number of people decided that these restrictions on everything from bars to haircuts to, you know, whatever, really were more of an affront than the pandemic was a danger, that they were really, really for opening the economy and for having their freedom and, you know, damn the torpedoes, to heck with the disease. As the numbers have risen with the disease, you see that shifting back a little bit. You know, primarily, I mean, the place where you see it is in Greg Abbott's eyes right now. You know, the change from last week to this week was a significant one and I think was driven by the increase in the strength of the coronavirus in Texas. Yeah, you know, somebody uh, in the political world that I was talking to about the press conference yesterday commented that you know, in political terms, she thought that all the principals at the at the press conference, you know, ha- had a bit of fear in their eyes, you know, mm-hmm. and in their and in their affect uh, as you watch them move through that press conference. You know, you raised the politics of this, and I want to talk about that for a few, uh, for a few minutes. I mean, I think that you know, and you and I have talked about this. And when we looked at the polling that we did in the April UT Texas Tribune poll, the challenge to the political leadership, I thought, was was presented very clearly in those poll results. Because on one hand, if you looked at, for example, the item in which we asked whether people thought that anybody who had You've been exposed to the virus, I think, you know, should be quarantined for 14 days. Um, you know, the the civil libertarian kind of impulses that the governor is wary of were really fairly muted in that response. I think more than 80 percent uh, supported that and a majority of Republicans, as I recall. Yeah, it was um, a majority of every single group, subgroup you know, however we could you broke them. Right, right. You know, and, you know, it, it seemed to me all along that that gave the state leadership something to work with. Now, as we as we started to parse that out and we said, you know, we asked people what they thought were reasonable limitations and how long the 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 state at that time, what was the stay at home order, you know, would last. You began to see. A bit more, you know, in some ways, in some places, substantially more division uh, among Republicans and conservatives. But the baseline of of acceptance of that seemed to uh, of the seriousness of the virus seemed to be there. And I think the big question as we're moving forward is, you know, to what degree is that eroded, and to what degree can that be restored? by communication and, and by the situation on the ground. And I don't, you know, I, I don't know how to handicap that really, other than by getting more data, which we hope to do soon. Yeah, I think they've just got to kind of keep an eye on all of the, you know, you, you're basically controlling the responses to danger. And if the coronavirus is rising, then you increase the responses to that. You know, you tell people to wear masks, you tell people that you might have to, slow things back down. If the 
disease, when the disease appears to be in hand or controlled, you know, really as it did at the beginning of May, it looked like, you know, we had sort of figured out how to plateau this thing. We had flattened the curve to use the language of that moment. And, you know, it seemed like everything was going okay. And that maybe we could reopen some things and get people out and try to take care of the economy, which is also an existential danger. People can't work and can't pay for their place to, you know, food, shelter, clothing, and all of that. It's, you know, as dangerous in some ways as the disease is. So I think these guys, you know, the problem is that they've got this very quickly moving situation with the pandemic, a very quickly moving situation with uh, the economy. And the tools that they've got are a little bit blunt, you know, so you you change something and then you wait two weeks to see how it worked or something goes bad and you have to make a change and you don't get to see a change in direction for two weeks. It's really hard to respond to this. And it's particularly hard if you haven't got a steady stream of communication going. And I think this is a, a place where a lot of the leadership has failed. You don't have a steady line of communication that says, look, we are in a dangerous circumstance. This is going to be very hard. We all have to throw in together and we all have to keep our eye on the ball. And and instead, we've let that waver around. You know, for a while, we were afraid of the pandemic and then we weren't afraid of it at all. We were worried about the economy. And then all of a sudden, we were worried about civil liberties. And, you know, and then the pandemic came back. It's hard to keep people's eye on the ball and it's particularly hard to get the public to follow a leader who hasn't been clear and concise and consistent. I want to end on that point of leadership in a second, but I also want to, you know, I think, I think the other thing it's important to underline here is that as we're talking about tools and, and the threat of, you know, how you balance economic hardship and, you know, the inability to make a living or, you know, put food on the table is that we've in Texas, but also because of the leadership at the national level, you know, we've also constrained our choices beforehand in in that regard. And that, you know, I, you know, Greg Abbott is unlikely to announce, you know, a major economic support pro, you know, program for those that are unemployed or that are are that are experiencing economic hardship. You know, in part because we don't have the, the policy tools to do that, in part because the policy environment is so limited. And in fact, some of those economic measures we've already begun to reverse, um, you know, the measures that were taken at the state level in the, in the early period of the pandemic. And so, you know, I, I think the policy environment as we find it has also deprived the state of some tools um, there was, you know, there, there have been stimulus measures passed at the federal level, but that's also stalled out in Washington, which I think in, to some degree is not just about the communication piece you're talking about, but about, you know, the, the policy environment that is defined by politics. You know, one of the answers to economic problems in Texas has always been get the get business revved up and get let's power out of this thing, you know, and the answer immediately when the state, you know, shut down was, you know, unemployment insurance gets stepped up. Um, you have all of this social network that answers that in the short term, but their medium and long-term answer was, we can't keep doing this. You know, to your point, what we need to do is open the economy, make sure everybody's working. And if they're working, then 
they have the income to take care of these things that if they're not working, we have to pay for with unemployment insurance. So I think the economic, you know, the return to a fully open economy was their answer in some way to the social problem caused by pandemic and quarantine. But as I said, it's an imperfect tool. You put everybody back out into the workplace or back out into the economy or back into the shopping malls, restaurants, and all of those things. And you've given another fresh foothold to the pandemic. And, you know, this is, this is where consistent messaging would have helped them. If they had stayed the course, two things here. Early on, Greg Abbott came out and said, look, the state is going to do these things to this point. If you feel like in your local area you need more or you need to do something different, go ahead and do that. And that gave mayors and county judges and superintendents, you know, a bunch of leeway to do things locally. And then he came in a few weeks later and said, you know, we're going to have one set of rules for the whole state and nobody can go beyond those rules, which put him at odds with, in particular, some of the big cities and big counties in the state where they had spot problems that they wanted to do, where they wanted to take other actions that the state government was not taking. And now he's sort of going back into his early stance of, you know, the state's going to do this set of regs. And if you need to do something local, you know, here are some ways where you might do that. The example here was, you know, you can't fine or penalize people for not wearing masks, but you can fine or penalize businesses that don't require people to wear masks, which is another way to get at the same thing and to try to skirt the objections from the political objections from civil libertarians. Um, I just think that they're having a hard time controlling this because they've been inconsistent about talking about the real threat of this and what they were doing about it and why. Do you, you know, my read of this that is in the end, uh, the state leadership and, you know, you have to say the governor and his team have been worried about the response from within their own party and from within certain corners of their own party. Um, I, I was willing, frankly, to see that as somewhat reasonable in some of the muddied and deliberate action leading up to, this, to the shutdown of the state. It seems to me it's becoming a real constraint on their ability to respond effectively. I think it was a good idea in the short term. I think you were right in the short term, and I think that's what they were thinking. You know, I, you know, I think they're all well intentioned. They're not. They didn't want it to go haywire, but you know, the models on this. You know, this is going to seem over dramatic, uh, but the models on this are people like Winston Churchill, who you know. Britain's getting bombed. Germany is right there. America hasn't got into this thing. And he goes on the radio and he tells everybody, look, this is we're in for it. And this is going to be really, really tough. This is going to be really, really hard. We might fail. In fact, the odds are against us, but we're going to lean into it and fight this thing. And then, you know, they kept that message and that idea. And, you know, eventually things came around. It, that worked. But that's also a model of communication through a thing like this. You have to acknowledge the problem. You know, don't talk it down. Don't say it's going to be over in a minute. Don't say it's already gone, which is a problem mainly from the White House. And then you have to bear down and stick to your guns, you know, even when it's uncomfortable. When, you know, people are hollering to get haircuts, you have to say, just let your hair grow. This is more important. I think that's a good place to, to close it today, Ross. Thanks a lot. 
You haven't had a haircut, have you? I appreciate it. I actually bought a pair of clippers and started cutting it myself. I figured I was old enough that I'd had four or 500 haircuts in my life and I should have learned something. And besides, I can't see the back. <laughs> so who cares, right? right. A role model for us all. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks a lot for the conversation, Entrenching Analysis, Ross. Stay safe. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks to our crew in Liberal Arts ITS. And we will talk again next week. Take care, all. The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin.